Hello everyone. Do you like reading? Do you like walking? Do you like thinking about your life? Then we have got something for you. Our Common Ground Pilgrimages are going to be announcing our slate of fall and winter 2020 pilgrimages on March 2nd. So if you sign up for our newsletter at readingandwalkingwith.com, you will be the first to know when registration launches and only people on our newsletter will get 30 minutes early registration access and it's first come first serve. So signing up first might mean the difference between getting a spot or not. There's less than 20 spots on each pilgrimage and one of them might be involving me and a book that we all love. So you're talking about you leading a pilgrimage with he's just not that into you? A hundred percent, yeah. <laughs> oh my God, I'm there. So that's readingandwalkingwith.com. Sign up to the newsletter. Be the first to know about our pilgrimages this year. Chapter 12, The Polyjuice Potion. They stepped off the stone staircase at the top and Professor McGonagall rapped on the door. It opened silently, and they entered. Professor McGonagall told Harry to wait and left him there, alone. I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And I'm Casper Terkyle. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Growing up in my parents' house, one of the favorite things about our bathroom was this old family tree that hung next to the mirror. And as I would brush my teeth as a little kid, I would look up at this family tree and see my name and my parents' names and my grandparents' names and their parents' names and then their parents' names, people I had never met. And yet I would feel such a strong sense of connection to this lineage and a sense of where I came from and the people to whom I belonged. And I think there's something so powerful in having symbols like that for the belonging that we experience, for the relationships that matter. And it struck me that in this chapter, when we meet Dumbledore's office for the first time, you know, we enter into that room and we look up at the walls and we see all of these previous headmasters and headmistresses. And for the headmaster or headmistress who currently occupies that role as head of Hogwarts, it must be so powerful to experience that sense of connection with all of these leaders from the past and so this year when I got married, I was really overcome with emotion when my husband revealed that he had asked someone to make us a new family tree with not only all of these people from my history, but also his entire family tree. And they're beautifully connected. There's red flowers on my side and blue flowers on his. And our names are connected by these two different colors of flowers. And so you know, as we think about this chapter, I'm interested in seeing where we find the symbols of belonging and also where they're absent. Where are people excluded because there aren't symbols that make them feel welcome? Casper, I was also struck by all of those headmasters and headmistresses in that office and how comforting it must feel to Dumbledore to have those people around him and imagining their triumphs and their mistakes as he goes through his time at Hogwarts. So thank you so much for that beautiful story, and thank you so much for the beautiful job that you do while you time me in the 30-second recap. It's a real skill that you have. Other people wouldn't do it as well. That's true. I press that start button like nobody else. (laughs) All right. You ready? I'm ready. Three, two, one, go. Harry goes up to Dumbledore's office. Dumbledore says, I know that you didn't petrify anybody. Harry, but Harry, do you have anything else to say to me? And Harry's like, uh, nope. And then they finally use the polyjuice potion. They meet. Everybody else goes home for the holidays. 
And Harry and Ron change into Crab and Goyle, and Hermione is supposed to change into Millicent, but something goes wrong. They get all this information out of Draco, like the Malfoys are hiding things. He's definitely not the heir of Slytherin. And then at the end of the chapter, it turns out that Hermione got turned into a cat and not into Millicent Bolstrode. It's pretty good. Thank you. It's a new season for a new, I don't know. Reason. (laughs) On your mark, get set, go. So Harry is brought up to Dumbledore's office. We meet Fawkes for the first time. Hagrid tries to defend Harry, but Dumbledore knows it wasn't him. Um, and then um, the Polyjuice potion is ready, so they go to Mo- Moaning Myrtle's bathroom, and they um, they uh, Crab and Goyle eat cakes, which make them go to sleep and in a broom cupboard, and then they transform, and they go and talk to Draco, and Draco's like, what's up with you guys? You're kind of weird. But then they extract some information, and Draco is not the heir of Slytherin, and his father is hiding things under the house, and Arthur Weasley is going to get fired or something. There's investigation then they return and um dumbledore no what's her name hermione is a cat that was a great 33 second recap challenge i just why is hermione in my brain next to dumbledore (laughs) that's weird i think hermione would make a great headmaster of hogwarts that's i always think the final chapter of book seven is frustrating to me because she absolutely would be the headmistress wouldn't she i refuse to be upset about how the book ends Casper, there's a very obvious place to start, which is that as soon as Harry is alone in Dumbledore's office, the first thing that he sort of does is reaches for the sorting hat. Now, he has a tremendous sense of belonging with Gryffindor. And talk about symbols, right? As soon as you become a part of Gryffindor House, you physically move into the space. You have different house colors. You have different teams that you identify with. There are all sorts of symbols that you begin to identify with and that really create your sense of identity and your sense of belonging within Hogwarts. But Harry, since this whole, like, Heir of Slytherin rumor has been going around, He's really been wondering about his sense of belonging. And so he puts on the sorting hat. And Harry says to the sorting hat, he goes, er, sorry to bother you. I wanted to ask. And the sorting hat answers, you've been wondering whether I put you in the right house. You were particularly difficult to place, but I stand by what I said before. You would have done well in Slytherin. And Harry is really upset about this and rips the hat off and shouts, you're wrong. And I feel like the only reason that he would do that is because it's really important to him to belong in Gryffindor and not belong to the same house as Voldemort. And we all know that we're not guilty by association. You're not defined by sort of like the worst member in your family. But Harry has a very strong attachment to being a Gryffindor. And I'm wondering how you think belonging is part of that. Yeah. You know, Harry is welcomed so warmly into Gryffindor and people celebrate him for being in Gryffindor and Professor McGonagall loves him and there's nothing that would make him feel like an outsider in Gryffindor and yet he still has these suspicions. And, you know, I'm thinking back to when I was 10, 11 years old and I would still brush my teeth looking up at that family tree, but I still wondered sometimes, like, am I adopted? My family is so weird. I'm so different. No one understands me, right? So you still have that sense of, do I really belong? Even if all the symbols are there, even if everyone is doing right, I just think that's part of being human is this constant wondering. I think so much of this comes from a place of fear for Harry because he is unable to make the distinction between, well, perhaps I would have been good in Slytherin and 
if I'm in Slytherin, it means I'm bad. It means I'm dangerous. It means I'm going to hurt people that I love. And I think that's what's so scary for him is that he feels he doesn't have control over this identity. He's just learned he's a parcel mouth. He's worried like, well, if I was going to be in Slytherin, what else would it mean about me? And I think that's the things that make us feel like we don't belong. Sure, sometimes come from the outside world, but sometimes they're kind of worries about our darkest self that we wish no one else knew. I think that we as humans want to believe that we only belong in one place. Ooh, that's good. Tell me more. Because so I see this in relationships a lot. When I went through a big breakup, everybody was saying to me, oh, well, he was a jerk. You guys obviously weren't meant to be. And I really dug my heels on like, A, I wasn't in a five-year relationship with a jerk. He's still a good person. He's still the person I dated for five years. Second of all, I disagree. I think that versions of us did belong to one another and that we made a decision that we didn't want to be those versions of ourselves. So it was a conscious choice to no longer belong to one another. And that in other relationships, I'm choosing to belong to somebody else and that I want them to belong to me. And I don't think the choicefulness of that diminishes the sense of belonging. And to some extent, I actually think it's incredibly romantic to not feel fated to somebody else, to not say, like, I feel a sense of belonging to you, but, like, I choose you. And so that sense of belonging is not natural. It is a choice that I am making. And there are all these other people out there, and I am choosing to belong to you. Which is exactly what the sorting hat rewards, right? Harry says, please not Slytherin, please not Slytherin. He's choosing to be in Gryffindor, and that's what the hat ultimately says. It doesn't make it not true that he would have succeeded in Slytherin. Exactly. But it's responding to what he's chosen. I love that. I think that when we're doubting our sense of belonging, we are scared that we've made the wrong choice. And that if we believe too much in the fact that we have made a choice, it it makes us feel like we could be making the wrong decisions. We could be in the wrong house. Maybe Harry would have been better in Slytherin and maybe he is this totally other person or maybe I should be in another relationship or whatever insecurities it is. I remember, you know, as a kid, when you get strep throat or something, they give you amoxicillin and like that is the prescription for the problem. And I needed glasses starting at the age of five. And I remember the doctor saying, you know, which do you see better out of, A or B? And it occurred to me that basically I was going to determine my glasses prescription. And that completely freaked me out because I was like, well, what if I don't know what's better, A or B? How am I supposed to know I'm five years old? And so sometimes we want to export that sense of like, you tell me whether or not I belong rather than saying, okay, it's on me. I get to decide. I see better out of these glasses. Like that's a lot of pressure and it can be really scary. This is so interesting, Vanessa, because we're thinking about belonging in the way that we've talked about it so far is when we feel like we don't belong, it comes from something inside of us. But there are also times where you know, frankly, people just say you don't belong here or go home to where you come from or, you know, even in subtle symbolic ways. I think of Barack Obama entering the White House and there is this long line of centuries of presidents who are all white guys. And there's this first African-American president. And that symbol of him not belonging, I mean, ultimately is replaced, right, by his portrait as the 44th president, which is this beautiful symbol of change. But at the same time, so often we feel like we're made not to belong. And if someone takes away our sense of belonging, that's like a primal wound that is very difficult to heal. 
I mean, little kids know that. I mean, an insult that gets hurled amongst siblings is often like, well, you were adopted. I remember when the stork dropped you off. Like, we know that we can really wound by saying you don't belong here. Yeah, that's so true. We always made fun of my sister for that, which is so mean. (laughs) It is, but I think that it gets to the importance of it. We know that this is something that can really wound is by saying to someone you don't belong. I have a question for you, Casper. Who does Draco belong to? Crab and Goyle belong to him. But his dad, at the beginning of this book, we see his dad really putting him at an arm's distance. Snape seems to just be instrumentalizing him in order to wound Harry. I feel like we get a sense in this chapter of Draco's profound aloneness. I think you're so right. And I think in some way, the scene in the Slytherin common room where Harry and Ron are dying to find out if Draco's the one responsible. And they ask him, you know, who's the heir of Slytherin? And Draco says, like, I wish I knew. You know, and it made me think that Draco kind of wants to belong, or he wants to be in on the action. You know, he wants to belong to the team that is terrorizing the school and and is attacking muggle-born people. Because if he's not in on that, then who is he? And we saw exactly as you say, Lucius is so nasty to him at the beginning for not kind of living up to the Malfoy name that I can imagine Malfoy feeling like there's a lot of pressure on him to perform this nastiness or to be it or to perform it, whatever it is. But if he's not involved, if he doesn't belong to this terrorization campaign, then he's failing at being a Malfoy. What do you think, Vanessa? I mean, the parallel that's coming to mind is that An argument that is often made to fly the Confederate flag in southern states is this is our culture and this is what we belong to. And we're not proud of everything that this stands for, but it's who we are. And that's a national conversation we're having right now. What do you do with buildings that are named after people whose values we now judge but who were important in their time? And who do we want to belong to and who do we want to represent us? And I think belonging – is a macro and political thing, too. And we have to realize that the belonging is intersectional, that Draco can be sort of a good kid who is the son of Death Eaters, who therefore wants to be a part of that really hateful culture, and maybe not for the same reasons, but for a sense of belonging. I just, I think that the politics and the personal becomes inseparable in these moments. I mean, as the grandchild of Holocaust survivors, I don't want to just be thought of as a victim, right? And I don't want my grandparents to just be thought of as victims. And that was a huge way to identify myself and as a sense of belonging. But it's not the only way that I understand myself as a Jew. And it's definitely not the only way that I understand myself as my grandparents' granddaughter. I ate cashews for the first time in a long time the other night. And It made me miss my grandmother so much because she always fed us cashews. And I just associate that smell and taste with her. And it's like, yeah, she isn't just a Holocaust survivor, right? She was like, she was my cashew supplier. And I think that that makes me feel like I belong to her. Cashews make me feel like I belong to my grandmother just as much as our shared history. And I think this is such an important point, Vanessa, because 
a lot of people might not know their parents. Even Harry, right? We know for the first eleven years of his life, feels so disconnected, but is able to reconnect with his history in this amazing way. But you know, even if someone is adopted and has no idea about their biological background, they still have a background of relationships. Like the cashew nut feeding, right? Like that has nothing to do with a biological connection, and everything to do with a loving connection that has been built over time. And so, I think we're able to create new structures of belonging, and we don't have to stick to the structures that we're given. If we don't feel like the structure of belonging that we're born into, or that the culture has raised us into, is right or fair or honourable, then we can create a new one, and we have permission to do that. In fact, we should do that. Well, I think that everybody gives a really hard time to teenagers that they're rebelling, but that's so good, right? Thank goodness that teenagers spend a lot of time questioning whether or not they really belong to their families. I think, you know, as a child, you entirely belong to our parents, and I think that we are hormonally set up to reject that. And I think that it's really important to not belong. To some extent, we have to identify ourselves by what we're not. I'm so glad for like teenage reptiles. Otherwise, we never would have questioned enough to get out of the swamp, <laughs> right? Yeah, for sure. Like that period of questioning helps us create new realities every generation. So this is giving me a new appreciation for Draco because I think that perhaps because Lucius is pushing Draco away, Draco never gets to rebel. I wonder if Lucius was actually loving and holding on to Draco a little more tightly, which we know he's not. We know that Lucius is ashamed of Draco and is like pushing Draco away. And I think that that rebellion, I sound like the worst pop psychologist right now, but I do wonder if because Draco feels like he needs to cling on to any sort of sense of belonging to the Malfoy name, that he never fully rebels. And we find out later in the series that Draco is capable of rebellion, and he has an inner moral compass. And I think that the fact that he doesn't feel like he belongs in his family makes him hold on to that all the more. Love your children so they can reject you, right? Oh, this is all so sad but true. Yeah, only then can they flourish into who they really become. So Hermione. Hermione belongs to a lot of things. She belongs to a great muggle family. She now belongs in Gryffindor. She belongs to this killer trio. She has a tremendously strong sense of identity as the best student. And I just, I need us to start watching for the love of my life, Hermione Granger. She is a tricky little something, something. Does, I mean, does Hermione have too strong of a sense of identity where in these two chapters, Hermione steals, resorts to violence, is like breaking all sorts of school rules. Should I be rethinking my love of Hermione? Well, what I think is happening through this theme of belonging is that she has shifted her allegiance, right? She would never have been breaking these rules before. She would never have risked her identity as the best student in the class. But she realizes that she belongs to something bigger and more important than just the Hogwarts machine, as it were, you know, just the grade A student. She belongs to a trio and a friendship which is about justice and about safety. You know, she wants to protect her fellow students and she's willing to take real risks. So, you know, sure, we should keep an eye on Hermione, but only to see how awesome she is. <laughs> so she's like a killer justice rebel. Exactly.
I just, as a dog person, I cannot imagine a bigger punishment than being turned into a cat. Let the hate tweets start coming in. I prefer cats. Ugh. Casper, I have one other moment of belonging that I don't think I have a lot to say on, but I just want to highlight, which is Harry walks into Dumbledore's office. And I'm just reminded of a year ago in the story where Harry sees his first magical photograph of Dumbledore on the Chocolate Frogs and how confused he is about the wizarding world and how he doesn't belong at all to this world. All he has are questions. But when he walks into Dumbledore's office, he sees all these moving portraits and he knows exactly what they are and what they do. And I just think that through this book and a half, we've seen Harry really become a part of the wizarding world, and he now belongs in this world. And that was just a nice growth moment to see. And it's especially poignant given that he is walking into this room really wondering where he's belonging. He puts on the sorting hat immediately, and it's like, are you sure I belong in Gryffindor? When I think if we take a step back, we can see how clearly he belongs and how within a year he's just made himself belong so strongly. That's beautiful, Vanessa. There was a little moment for me as well that stood out, which is, you know, we love the Weasley twins. And there's a wonderful moment where they really invite someone else to feel belonging. And I think that's such a gift. You know, everyone's electing whether they should go home for the Christmas holidays or stay. And the twins decide to stay and not join their parents on their trip to Egypt to see Bill, their older brother. And I think Partly that's about their generosity of not being a big cost burden for their parents. But it's also, I think, as a sibling to another sibling saying, hey, you get this time with mom and dad. I want you to feel a sense of belonging because you're far away in Egypt. And that just made me feel all warm and fuzzy. And to be at Hogwarts with Ron and Harry and, you know, Harry doesn't have anywhere to go. And I think that the fact that everybody stays around to spend the holidays with him, I think that that is part of the motivation is they want him to feel like he belongs to a family. They're just giving belonging in all the places. Thanks, Fred and George. Especially George. I have a crush on you. It is time for our spiritual practice, and we're continuing with the Jewish practice of Chavruta, where we analyze the text and one of us brings a question to the other, but also suggests an answer. So Vanessa, what question are you bringing to us today? Casper, I picked this moment especially for you. I know how much you love the symbols of the birds in these books. So I want to talk about fox. So what I'm curious about is why we meet fox like this. So Harry comes in and we meet Fox and Fox immediately bursts into flame. And there's a very cute moment where Harry is nervous. He's like, I'm already in trouble for being the heir of Slytherin. And now I didn't even do anything to this bird. And, but anyway, so we find out that it's a burning day. And so Dumbledore says to Harry, it's a shame that you had to see him on a burning day. He's really very handsome most of the time. Wonderful red and gold plumage. Fascinating creatures, Phoenix is. I'm wondering why this is the moment in which we meet Fox. We could meet Fox on a day where he is gorgeous in his red and gold plumage, but we don't. We meet him on a burning day. And my theory that I would like to propose to you in Havruta is that it is a reminder to Harry, who's in the middle of being accused of something, that we rise from the ash, that it's okay to fall apart, and that it's hard to come out of that. Fox still looks very ugly as like a new bird, but that we do rise again. 
But I'm wondering what you think about that. Ooh, Vanessa, this is so juicy because if we go along with that theory, then there's a couple of other things that we could read into it. One is that, yeah, as you say, as Fawkes is reborn, he's this little chick, right? He's very vulnerable still. So even as we emerge from a trial, like it doesn't mean that we're suddenly stronger and able to handle the world in in a better way. It still means we're vulnerable. But also we learn that phoenixes have these hidden gifts, right? That they can carry extremely heavy loads, that their tears can heal wounds. And so just as Harry is dealing with this weird gift that he has of being able to speak parcel tongue, Forks has these hidden gifts, which he doesn't use every day, but nonetheless will come into great use. So I love this theory. Another answer might be that seeing Forks burst into flames and as you say, Harry feels guilty and he's worried he's going to be blamed for this as well. It has nothing to do with Harry, right? Fawkes is just at the end of his cycle. And this is the moment when he burns to ash and is reborn. And I think, you know, for so many of us, we put ourselves into a story that's happening without us. You know, whether we're there or not, Fawkes is going to burst into flames and be reborn. And I think maybe that's another reason why we meet Fawkes now is that it's a bit of a reminder to Harry and to the rest of us that we're probably not as important as we think. What that made me think of is maybe one of the reasons that we meet Fox at this moment is as a reminder to ourselves that when something is bursting into flame in front of you, you can't necessarily help. And maybe the reminder that Harry needs right now is this thing is happening at school and like he can't do everything. He cannot stop Fox from bursting into flame and he cannot be the savior. I think to your self-involvement point, we also have an inflated sense of how much we can help other people, right? It's like hard to tell when we should be intervening. But I think that this moment with Fox is a reminder to us and to Harry that like sometimes things are supposed to burn. Yes, that's true. And of course, Harry is going to rescue Ginny. You know, he is going to be the one who saves the day. And so that's really complicated. I mean, he didn't have to, but he is able to. And I, and I think that's why I love this image of phoenixes being able to carry so much more than their own body weight, right? They're so much stronger than they look. Like that's also a beautiful image of, you know, people can endure great suffering much more than we probably expect we can. You know, we're much more adaptable as creatures than we think we are. And we'll see Harry and Hermione and Ron do that as as the books continue. So there is this powerful symbolism in Fawkes. And I think it's important that Harry meets Fawkes on his own, right? That there's no distractions, that he has full attention in this moment of destruction and rebirth. And that, you know, that's an, also a broader metaphor for the wizarding world, right? Voldemort was in power. And who defeats him? This innocent baby. There's this vulnerability that overcomes ultimate evil. And just as evil rises again in these next seven books, it will be destroyed again. Yeah, I wonder if Harry has to meet Fox now in this way just to show himself that he is going to be all but destroyed but come back. I quit and give up when things start hurting just a little bit, and I could go a lot further. And I think that Harry feels really sorry for himself in this moment, and it's like a reminder of, no, you can handle a lot more. You can bear a lot more than this right. and still be reborn and be fine. Right. My friend Michael, who's a trainer, fitness trainer, says the mind is always the first to give up. You know, like our bodies can actually do more than, than our minds think we're capable of. And I wonder if that's something that Harry is just seeing happen here and putting away in his memory basket, as it were. 
Can I just say, so I know that to be true, but there have been moments where I have pushed my body past the point where I should have, and I have fainted or gotten sick. I once worked my way through an exhaustion, and I fainted, and just falling that quickly dislodged something in my inner ear, and I had vertigo for two weeks. And I probably should have just taken a nap. (laughs) You know, like, I could have avoided a lot, but I did rise from that, and Like, I learned a lot through that experience. So maybe that's it. It's that, I don't know, it's almost a call for enduring suffering, which Harry is going to have to endure so much suffering. I thought it was just a bird. This week's voicemail is from Evan Shin. Hi there. My name is Evan Shin, and I'm a longtime listener, first-time caller. And I just wanted to tell you how much I am in love with your podcast, particularly because of your call of assuming the best of what the text is like saying. I happen to be a language arts and social studies teacher for ninth graders and 10th graders. Yep, 14 and 15 year olds. And uh, so often I am calling on my students to be skeptics of what the author is saying, to assume that the author is wrong, uh, to pick out their words apart, and to put the author's words really under a microscope to almost embarrass the writer or to call them out over their lack of imagery, diction, or figurative language, or whatever. And I think that so often, that's often the call of teachers now, is that we're pressed to push students from the affective domain uh, to more of the cognitive domain. And your podcasts kind of ask, uh, what if there's room for both? What if there's room for us to both think and to feel. And what if we make reading stick by asking our students first what they actually feel? So I am so thankful for the work that you're currently doing, and I'm so excited to see what is coming up next. Evan, I love that idea. As a former high school English teacher, I wish I had thought to ask my students, how did this book make you feel, rather than ask them, like, about plot or, you know, sort of do those more literal questions. I think that that's exactly what we should be asking from every piece of art we engage with. First and foremost, how is this making me feel? And let's just go from there. So thank you so much for your voicemail. I really appreciate it. Casper, now we have the gift of being able to bless a character from this chapter. Whom would you like to bless this week? My blessing is for Arthur Weasley. I can only imagine how frightening it must be for him and Molly To be investigated, you know, and especially as Lucius is behind this in one way or another, we probably already know what the outcome is going to look like. And to feel like you're being investigated or, you know, threatened in some way by this system that you can't control is so frightening, especially when your job and your family's well-being is on the line. So this blessing is really for anyone who feels like things are happening to them without their control, unfairly especially around their work, maybe, you know, just like Arthur, know that people around you care about you and want the best for you. And even though this horrible thing is happening, that it will not change how we think about you. Vanessa, how about you? Who is receiving your blessing today? I would like to bless all of those headmistresses that are up in Dumbledore's office. We don't know anything about them for the most part. And 
Um, we know a little bit about Helga Hufflepuff and Rowena Ravenclaw, but we really don't learn about the history of headmistresses. And I feel like it seems as though women in the wizarding world have had power much longer than women in the muggle world have. And I just would love to know more about these women. And I think that that is true of women in history in our muggle world. It's not that women haven't been doing amazing things since the beginning of recorded time. It's just that we haven't recorded their stories. And so this blessing is for all of the amazing women who have done things that are just as important as any male general or politician, but whose stories just weren't recorded because of our gender. This blessing is for you with all of my gratitude and I thought of you when I saw all those headmistresses asleep in Dumbledore's office in those portraits. So thank you. Amen. Amen. You've been listening to Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Next week, we'll read Chapter 13, The Very Secret Diary, through the theme of cowardice. Our live show is two weeks away today, so make sure to go onto the website to check if there's any tickets left. We'd love to see you in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Please subscribe and review on iTunes or wherever you find your podcasts. We love reading your reviews. And follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Tumblr, and Facebook. This episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text was produced by Ariana Nettleman, Casper Kyle, and me, Vanessa Zoltan. Our social media coordinator is Jen Stark. Our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Bull. Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is part of the Panoply Network. You will find ours and other great shows at panoply.fm. We'd like to thank Evan Shin for sending in this week's voicemail, Grace Sharp for sending in a theme for us to use, Rebecca and Charlie Ludley, and Stephanie Paulsell, the love of our lives. Bye. Who or whom? Would you like to bless this week? Whom would you like to bless this week? <laughs> I sound Love like an owl. One more time. <laughs> 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 <laughs>